Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. As we're all stuck at home, we can only fantasize about our perfect dinner party at a perfect place with our perfect guests to celebrate the end of the pandemic. And that's exactly what the Financial Times columnist Simon Cooper has been doing while locked up in his Paris apartment. Uh, Simon, who and what is your fantasy dinner party to end this awful uh, pandemic? Well, when it ends, when there's a vaccine, I'm taking a private jet to Hong Kong to the China Club where I ate once. And I'm inviting George Orwell, Hannah Arendt and Joseph Heller, three of my favorite writers, to join me there. And um, my colleague, Jancis Robinson, will be the sommelier. And my late grandmother will uh, be the pastry chef for her chocolate cake. So I think it will be a pretty good night. And um, I'll put on any, I'll put on the little bit of uh, weight I've lost during the pandemic. I'm struck by the fact that you're based in Paris uh, and you've chosen to go to Hong Kong and you haven't invited any French intellectuals, not even Albert Camus, to talk about the end of the plague. Yeah, I mean, I read Camus at school, but I have to say that I grew up much more on um, English and American lit. Uh, as a schoolboy, my French is very poor, and I kind of moved here by accident as an adult, and I've got myself more or less up to scratch, although I found that in two months of lockdown with my family, I'm forgetting my French uh, scarily quickly. Um, what wisdom do you think uh, Orwell, Arendt, and Heller would have about the pandemic? What would they tell us? It's funny, I wouldn't really even want to talk to them about the pandemic so much. I mean, Heller wrote the best novel ever written, Catch-22. And um, Orwell and Arendt were great commentators on totalitarianism, uh, fascism. And although obviously what's happening in the world today is not quite the same, I feel they would have very interesting things to say about it. They are just people who understand politics, who understand the reasons why people make might, 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 might seem strange political choices. And they both wrote beautifully. And when I read Aaron's item in Jerusalem on an airplane about 30 years ago, I wanted to applaud when I finished it. So, you know, they would very rapidly understand what was going on and they'd be able to explain it to me. Is there no one, do you think, with the, the insight of an Orwell or an Arendt today? around today? I don't think so. But also, you know, the books you read when you're young stay with you in a much more stark way. They shape your mind when it can still be shaped in a way that, you know, when you're 50 years old, as I am now, you read a book and you may enjoy it, but you, A, you've learned to read critically, which is a disadvantage because you um, read with distance. You kind of don't disappear into a book in the way that you could when you were young and before smartphones were invented. And B, you, you're already to a large degree at 50, you're the person you are. Whereas when you're reading at 18, the book changes you. Do you think that uh, that, that 
Catch Twenty Two or Nineteen Eighty Four or um, or or any of the, the, uh, the uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem or on on totalitarianism would they read differently now after the pandemic? Or you think these are such universal books that it wouldn't really make much difference when you're reading them? You know, I mean, the, they say the mark of a classic is that you find something new in it every time you read it. I wonder if the pandemic is going to, you know, be remembered as one of the great events of history that people will write books about for decades to come. I mean, remember that the pandemic of a century ago, the Spanish flu killed 50 million people. Uh, We're now probably under half a million, so less than 1%. Of course, it's not all just about numbers, and there's something obscene about the way we've learned to talk about this pandemic in terms of stats. But I wonder just how big it will be. Of course, there's going to be a massive recession. How, you know, how much life and death will does recession bring when, you know, average incomes are as high as they were in historical terms when we went into this in February, March? Do you have any sense of the the most significant legacy? I mean, it's obviously... Uh deeply speculative, but do you get any sense of, 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 of historians in 50 or 100 years what they're going to most remember the virus for? I think it all depends on how long it takes to get a vaccine. So some British papers have been talking about there'll be a vaccine in September, which seems a bit optimistic. The general consensus has been, well, it takes a year, at least a year and a half. Of course, it could take four or five years, or as Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, said, we may never have a vaccine. We may have to learn to live in this kind of socially distanced way until there's uh, at least a cure. So, I mean, if this goes on for five years, I'm very confident that Paris, where I sit now, will not be the city it is today. A city builds around cafes and restaurants and concerts and you know, cinemas and public places. All big cities in the world will be decimated. People will, will flee to the countryside. Uh, we're already learning to work on Zoom. Will offices still exist if this goes on for a few years? On the other hand, if there is a vaccine by the autumn, then I think um, this will be a blip that's fairly quickly forgotten. It will be a kind of curiosity. Simon, many of our listeners will know you as the author or the co-author of Soconomics. You're the FT sports uh, columnist. Oh, correction. Sorry, let me jump in there. I'm a general columnist. I write a, a political and social column. I used to write a sports column, but since 2010, I've done political and social stuff. I write sports more on the side occasionally now. Okay, but you're 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 very well known as as a writer on uh, what Americans call soccer and what the rest of the world calls football. Uh, I note in your fantasy dinner party there are no footballers, no Johan Cruyff, no Pele, no Maradona. Yeah, I mean, Cruyff was my childhood hero. I grew up in the Netherlands. I did meet him. I spent an evening with him. It was pleasant. And then later we fell out. Uh, long story. He felt I wasn't allowed to write about it without paying him extra uh, when I wrote a kind of what it was like to meet my hero piece. And I met Maradona once. who seemed very pleasant. Uh, I think Cruyff was the most interesting man in football between about 30 and 45. And I'm, I'm actually just trying to write about that now because I'm writing a book about FC Barcelona in which he uh, has a starring part. So if there was anyone in football, it would be Krauf in those years. But I feel, you know, given the choice, I'd, I'd rather meet George Orwell, I'm sorry to say. I mean, Pelé, you know, 
he was a bit before my time, clearly the best player of his time. Would it be that fascinating to spend an evening talking to him? I'm really not sure. And what about contemporary figures in in the game, a Guardiola or a Messi? Would they be interesting for you? I mean, if you're writing a, a book about Barcelona, I guess you've probably already spoken to them. I haven't. I'm writing a long chapter on Messi, which is about, you know, how he does what he does, because we sort of take it for granted that, you know, you beat three men, you put it in the top corner. But how does that actually work? How have Barcelona managed him and how he's become the kind of mightiest figure in the club? We see him as this rather mutant personality free zone, but that's not how people in the club see him at all. Uh, he's actually considered a quite domineering, scary figure who determines a lot of what goes on there. Um, I would, you know, I, I'm not that desperate to interview him because whereas writers communicate obviously through words, uh, footballers other than perhaps Krauf don't. I mean, Krauf really had a kind of uh, what they call a logorrhoic tendency. He loved to talk all the time and he had things to say. Uh, I don't think Messi or Pelé have that particularly. Uh, Messi doesn't really need speech to get his views across or to show us his genius, of course. Uh, the football industry appears to me, at least, as an outsider to be increasingly a winner-take-all one, a, a tiny group of super elite, massively wealthy and powerful clubs, and then the rest. Um do you think that the soccer industry or what you call soccernomics reflects the nature of a, an increasingly unequal uh, early 21st century global capitalism? It does in terms of income. So, you know, the average salary at Barcelona is something like um, a bit over $10 million, although most players earn well below that and Messi takes 40% of the salaries. But anyway, as you know, Top footballers often earn in that kind of realm of five to ten million dollars or more. Whereas if you're playing for a small, you know, fourth tier club in England or in Germany, you'd you'd be lucky to get um twenty thousand. And many of those people's livelihoods are now in danger. But I don't see football as winner take all. I would dispute that. I would say there are different levels which all function quite well, at least until the virus. So there's the kind of Manchester United-Barcelona level, which is what you're talking about. And those are the only clubs that can win the Champions League or usually win their domestic league. And uh, that's very popular. And then you have the local club where, you know, you go and see Tranmere or Halifax or Rotherham and or Bielefeld in Germany or, you know, Erkasse um, in the Netherlands. They're all these little clubs and they function pretty well as well. They're not trying to win the Champions League. They're trying to provide a kind of local focus of community, entertainment, something to a ritual that you can pass on from generation to generation. They do that very well. So, you know, there was a lot of um, a lot of people were upset, rightly, when Berry went bust in England last year and actually folded. And Berry, a hundred and thirty-year-old football club, small overshadowed by neighbours like Manchester United. But actually, that's extremely rare. Um, I don't think another English club has disappeared permanently since 1931. So all these little clubs, they're not dying. And I'm, I'm fairly sure that they'll all almost all get through coronavirus in the end. They're just doing something different from what Barcelona or Manchester United are doing. What do you think that the, the virus, what is the impact of the virus on, on the football supporter? 
whether they support Barry or Accrington Stanley or Barcelona or Manchester United. You wrote a piece recently in the FT suggesting that it was compounding our, our depression, our crises of identity, our anxieties. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true for a particular category of football fan who's very dependent on football for a kind of community life, interactions with other people. I think most football fans, you know, they have bigger things to worry about and they're coping okay. But football is very important as a way, especially maybe for men who, especially for men who are emotionally less able to deal with other people, to just, you know, be with others. You don't have to talk about yourself. You don't have to talk about the other person. You can just watch the game in a pub or you can watch the game in the ground or you can just talk about the game without watching it. But it's a way for people to communicate. It adds a kind of uh, stability and ritual to your life because, of course, you know, from the age of seven to the age of 50, say, everything changes. You know, people around you die, you move, people get divorced. Uh, you lose contact with people, your body changes. You're not the person at 50 or at 70 that you are at seven. So everything changes. And the one thing that tends to remain the same if you're a football fan is the club that you support. And you remember being taken there maybe by your dad or by your mom, and you've taken your kids there. And it's a kind of, it's the only thing often that's still there. And especially, you know, as a lot of community institutions have broken down over the decades, uh, trade unions, uh, churches, uh, little league, all sorts of ways that people connected with neighbours around them are weaker now than they used to be. Uh, Robert Putnam, the sociologist, has called this the bowling alone phenomenon. Americans used to go bowling in leagues, and now they tend to go bowling alone. And so as people become more atomized and isolated, football really does a job in giving many people community. So it's kind of ironic that, in in a way, f football uh, football supporters or the ones you're describing are themselves kind of isolated in time and space, and they do that through their association with their childhood club. You mean they're isolated now, or well, you, as you say, they sort of cut themselves off from history, and then and that's what sort of roots their identity. It doesn't change over time. I'd row back a little bit on the uh, the identity as a fan, that it's a one-club thing. What we found in Soconomics is that people are more flexible than that. There is a category of people, of course, who are one-club fans for life, and they only care about, say, Aston Villa, and um, you know they, they don't eat dinner if Aston Villa loses, that kind of thing. Those people exist, but they're very much a minority. Most football fans are more casual. Uh, they take an interest when their team wins. They're not so interested when it loses. They change if they move to a different city and their kids get into another team. They might get into that other team. And they can have affections for four or five teams in different countries and different leagues. So I'm not sure that fandom is defined for most people by kind of one club for life. You know, in that cliche, you can change your gender, but you can't change your club. I don't think that's true for most people. How do you expect the game to emerge from the crisis? There's, as, as you know, there's a huge debate around the world, particularly in the UK, about playing games without supporters. Um, the game will obviously survive, but how do you expect the next year or two to manifest itself in terms of uh, football around the world? Well, 
I think playing games without supporters is going to last a while. I was talking to someone at Barcelona who said that they're working on a scenario of no fans in the stadium until next February. And, you know, without a vaccine, what can you do? You can't bring 70,000 people together. Maybe you can't even get 25,000 safely into a stadium for 75,000. So I think we're going to get used to this if this lasts for a couple of years or more. And, you know, people complain about it, but what's the alternative is no football at all. So I think this must be better. And, you know, the, the clubs that are worst hit are the ones with small TV contracts who relied entirely on, or almost entirely on match day earnings, on ticket sales, on people uh, buying a club scarf, that kind of thing. And those clubs in the lower divisions, um, they have no income now at all. And so they'll be looking for the big clubs to, to prop them up during this time. I can see a scenario if this lasts a while that, um, you know, as you probably know, New Zealand is, is very close to being COVID free and Australia is not far off either. And they're talking about having a common travel zone. Well, Australia is a big sporting country. You can imagine if, you know, a year from now we're still in this situation, Premier League clubs look at, you know, shall we play the season or pass the season in Australia in front of stadiums? And, uh, you know, we go there, we all go into quarantine for two weeks and then we kind of play a normal season. You sell it on TV around the world because, you know, right now watching the Bundesliga last weekend, there was a kind of novelty in seeing people playing in an empty stadium. But that is going to wear off. Uh, the fans are kind of essential to people's enjoyment. The crowd is essential to the enjoyment of watching football on TV. Without a crowd, it's going to be uh, pretty dismal. Uh, finally, Simon, you said you're writing a book about Barcelona. W is there uh, a core lesson you're, you've learned or a learning from, from, from your history? The question I always have about Barcelona is, of course, today they're the sexiest, best-known brand in the world. But I remember seeing Barcelona, I think it was in 1984, 83 in the Cup Winners' Cup, and they were a dreadful team, filthy, uh, unattractive. They'd never won anything. How, uh, how has Barcelona made itself such a sexy brand? Well, the two main characters in my book are Cruyff and Messi, and I think they explain a lot of it. So Cruyff plays there, not brilliantly successfully in the 70s, but still he wins them their first title in 13 years. And you're right, they're a very poor team for much of their history, or, or, or a dull and unremarkable team. And then Kraif comes back as manager in 1988, and he says, essentially, we're going to play kind of Dutch attacking, passing possession football. And he makes that the house style. He says, I don't care whether a player is tall or short, I just care whether he can pass. And so you get, you know, slim, uh, slender people like Guardiola getting into the first team. And then you have very short players like Xavi and Iniesta, Messi. And so they invent a new kind of football. And Krauf really invents so much of modern football today. I mean, uh, Liverpool's Klopp style of um, high pressure owes a lot to Krauf. Uh, the German game with a kind of fly goalkeeper. Uh, so He's the most influential man in modern football. And then Messi comes along and he makes it easy for Barcelona. Because when you have Messi in the team for 15 years, you don't really have to think. And so now they recognize that they're coming to an end of an era and that it's likely the next 15 years will be less successful than the last 15. And in fact, they're looking at Manchester United as an example of what happens to a big club when you stop winning. You know, how fatal is that? Do you lose fans? Do you lose money? How do you reinvent yourself? 
So, um, yeah, I mean, without Cruyff and Messi, Barcelona's history looks very different. Uh, we always end these interviews, Simon, w- with me asking um, which book somebody would suggest for people to read during the, the lockdown. But you, of course, we began with that, with Orwell and, and, and Hella and uh, Anna Rent. So as a, as, a, as a final question, there'll be some people listening to this, not many, but some who don't understand the attraction of football. Um, is there a book or a game or a movie that people should watch to understand uh, why this is the most popular game in the world and why it dominates so many people's lives? This is going to be unoriginal, but if you want to get into the psychology of the fan who is obsessed with football, and most football fans aren't like that, but to understand that psychology, you have to read Nick Hormy's Fever Pitch. Nearly 30 years old, but it's still the book. I would say still the best football book in English anyway, ever written. Except that it's written by an Arsenal fan about Arsenal, right? Sorry about that. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.